Well, as we come to the Word this morning, we are going to be spending some time in Psalms chapter 10, and we're really going to be using that in other verses, but that's going to be our, our framework, at least, for our conversation this morning as we continue on this topic of learning the language of grief from the Psalms. And we find ourselves in part two this morning, uh, and and. And we come to, to a message that I think is, is one of the most difficult to walk through, and it's also one of the most difficult to explain clearly. Now, I say that because it's all about bringing our complaints to God. Now, I know as soon as I say that, the, the immediate reaction, and I know even in my own heart sometimes, would, would most likely be one of disbelief or possibly skepticism. You might say to yourself, well, hold on wait a minute, isn't complaining sin? Doesn't complaining reveal a heart of ungratefulness? So how can this morning then be about complaining? I don't know about you, but that's oftentimes what I tell my children when they're complaining, is that when they're complaining that they're being ungrateful. And to be completely frank, when when I started working through this material myself, I had the same initial reaction. Now, up to this point, we've seen how lamenting takes faith and is uniquely Christian. And last week, we looked at the first step to lamenting, which is turning to God. We said, first of all, when we're in those seasons of pain and suffering and sorrow, we should turn to God in prayer. But this next step in this process or in this language of grief is to bring your complaints to God. Now, Caitlin Hurley was a, a nursing student at a nursing school on Antigua. Now, she professes faith in Christ and, and at the time was, in her own words, saving herself for marriage. And uh, she ran into and met a British police officer who was vacationing in Antigua at the time. And they started interacting, spending time together. And she had made it really clear that she was not interested in sex. She was just interested in spending time together. After one date, he drugged her and raped her and then returned to England and seemed like he got away with it. Caitlin had to fight the legal system for four years to convince England to extradite this man to Antigua so that he could face justice for his crimes. Now, ultimately, he did receive a jail sentence. However, here's what she had to say about the incident. She said, I'm, I'm serving a life sentence in recovery. Nothing can make me the person I once was. When this happened, I felt as though God betrayed me, even after I followed him and his way of living. I still do not understand why he allowed this trauma to happen to me. And my heart breaks as I continually wonder why bad things happen to good people. She was suicidal for a long time after the incident, and this this incident shook her faith and the faith of her parents. They struggled doubting God's goodness and his love in the middle of this kind of pain and suffering. So if you can imagine with me, or imagine yourself, or someone you love in that situation, and, and what would you tell them? How could you help them navigate through their pain and their suffering to God? Now, I think we can all agree that in the middle of this kind of pain, these kinds of doubts, this kind of suffering, it would not be helpful to look look at this hurting woman and say, you just need to stop complaining. You're being ungrateful when you complain. 
that would not be a loving thing to say. So then, so then how could we help her to understand how she could bring her complaints to God in a way that would actually draw her heart to him? And that's really what we're going to explore this morning. But first off, we have to answer this question from the very beginning that, that I raised that says, is complaining always sinful? We have, to, we have to understand that from the outset. Is complaining always sinful? And as we look throughout Scripture, we can see several places where grumbling or complaining is condemned as sin. For example, we see it in the Old Testament, and we can see it clearly illustrated with the nation of Israel. Now in Numbers 11, so this is one illustration we're going to look at. In Numbers 11, the people have just left Mount Sinai. They've left Mount Sinai after God finishes giving Moses the law. God's already provided manna for them. They're only three days out from their journey from Mount Sinai. And the Lord is even visibly going before them as they travel in a, cl- in a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. And when we read Hebrews chapter 11, we read this in the first three verses. <clears throat> it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned again among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Well, it says that they were complaining, and we see this strong response from God for their complaining, but what were they complaining about? And we see that in verses 4 through 6. In Numbers 11, 4 through 6, it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna, which, by the way, God had provided them, right? This manna to look at. In that moment, the people despised the provision of the Lord, and in their grumbling and complaining about God's provision, God sent fire and consumed some of them, right? He took people's life in judgment for complaining. So we see that there are times... Right when complaining is sinful. We even see this sort of command about complaining or against complaining in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That seems really clear. God brings judgment on a group that were grumbling and complaining against him in the Old Testament. We have this clear communication from God in Philippians. It says, do all things without grumbling. So clearly there are instances where complaining is sinful. But that's not the whole story. And in contrast to illustrations such as this, or in contrast to statements like these, we have what sure looks like a lot of complaining in the Psalms. And as we have begun to work through the Lament Psalms, if we're being honest, we have to see that the that there has to be times when complaining isn't sinful. I mean, look at our psalm this morning in Psalm chapter 10. We see it right away in the very first verse. The psalmist writes in Psalm 10 verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, as we read those two questions, there's really only one way to understand them, and these are godly complaints. 
And to be clear, what makes this particularly interesting is that these aren't just written by the psalmist. They are, but they were actually words that were intended to be sung by a congregation full of people. Now, I know in our context that seems kind of crazy because we don't do this really in church, but we have songs that were intended to be sung. Actually, a whole book of psalms that are full of laments that include complaints like this were intended to be sung by entire groups together. So there has to be times when complaining is not sinful, but we we don't just see that in the psalms. We also have illustrations of that in the Old Testament as well. We have examples of of complaints to God where they don't seem to get the same reaction as we saw in Numbers chapter 11. So one of them is found in 1 Kings chapter 19. So I want you to see this example, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now this is an interesting narrative in the life of Elijah. Just prior to what we're going to read, we have this famous incident at Mount Carmel where God consumes Elijah's offering, but he, you know, he rejects the, the, the uh, sacrifice of, of those who worship Baal. You know, they worship all day long, and they cut themselves, and they cry out, and nothing happens. And yet Elijah sets up his sacrifice, and he calls out to God, and fire from heaven comes and consumes his sacrifice. And that's immediately followed by Elijah. He kills all the prophets of Baal. They, they're all killed. Well, Jezebel, the wicked wife of the king of Israel, hears this, and he wants Elijah dead. And Elijah's afraid. He flees into the wilderness. He ends up in a cave. And then we have, as he's in this cave, after he seemingly has obeyed God and fought for God, and now he's running for his life. And we have this interesting interaction between Elijah and God in 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 18. So there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And even I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And he continues on. And then in verse 18, he says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And that's fascinating because as you read that, what Elijah actually says to God, there's only one way to really understand that. And that's Elijah's complaining. 
He's voicing a complaint to God. He is telling God, and God makes it clear in verse 18 that he's actually wrong. But he says, I and I alone am left. God says, actually, I got like 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But, right? but Elijah cries out to God and says, it feels like I'm alone. I've worshipped you. I've been obedient to you. And I'm here and I'm running for my life. And I, I alone am left. And yet they're still trying to kill me. This is a complaint. However, God's response is different than how he responded to the nation of Israel in Numbers 11. It's, he actually responds to bring comfort, not judgment. He doesn't bring judgment upon Elijah's head. Instead, he gives Elijah's comfort in the midst of his sorrowing, and he gives him directions on what he should do next. So there's got to be something different then about what's going on with Elijah than what happened with the nation of Israel in Numbers 11. That's not the only time we see this in Scripture. We see Moses, honestly, if you read the life of Moses, there are lots of times that he brings complaints to God. One example is in Exodus 5. And in Exodus 5, Moses has gone before Pharaoh. He's asked the Israelites to be let go. And Pharaoh, his response is, oh, obviously I'm not working these Israelites hard enough. I need to work them harder. Moses turns around in Exodus 5, verses 22 and 23, and this is what he says. He says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. He's like, God, I, like, what's up? I stepped out in obedience. And it sure seems like things have gotten worse, not better. You haven't done what you said that you were going to do. He's, he's bringing a complaint to God. And so how does God respond? Well, we see God's response in Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. He said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So once again, we see this incident. Moses brings his complaint to God, and God does not respond with judgment. He actually lovingly affirms his promises to Moses. He comforts and encourages Moses. Notice he doesn't change the circumstances, but he reminds Moses of who he is and what he's promised and what he's going to do. So there, once again, there must be something different about what's going on with Moses than times when we see God bring judgment for complaint. Well, one last one, if, if, we, if we go to the New Testament, and I think this is the strongest example of, of godly complaint, complaint that could not be sinful. And we touched on it last week. We mentioned it last week, but I think it's worth mentioning again. And that's with Jesus himself. 
as he's on the cross, as the father turns his face from his son, we read in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once again, these are words directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. And we know that Jesus never sinned. So if Jesus can bring godly complaint to the Father, if he can complain in a way that is not sinful, then there must be a way for us to do that as well. So to flesh this out some, then then the desire is I want to understand. I see there are times when complaining is sinful, but there's obviously times when complaining is not sinful. So how do I understand that? And and how do I I go about so that I do this in a godly way? So we're going to understand three things. First, we're going to look at what godly complaining is not. Then we're going to look at what godly complaining is. And then we'll look at the purpose for godly complaining. So let's start with what godly complaining is not. Now, sinful complaining. Sinful complaining in Scripture comes from a heart of pride, from a heart that feels entitled, a heart that believes that God owes me something. I believe I'm owed something from God, and when I don't get it, or when what I believe I'm owed from God is taken away from me, then I doubt two things. I doubt God's love, and I doubt his goodness, and out of this heart position of pride, I go before God in anger and complain. And that's what we see in Numbers 11, right? In Numbers 11, with the nation of Israel, they looked and they said, all God has given us is manna. We deserve meat and leeks and onions. Oh, things were so much better than where we came from. Yet... So in that heart that believed I'm entitled to get something from God, he's not giving me what he should. And from that heart position of pride, they sin. Now we know from 1 Corinthians, Paul writes and says, you know, Old Testament narratives, one of their purposes is to give an example for us. To give an example for us sometimes of what we should not do. And in 1 Corinthians 10.10, he tells us that we shouldn't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he's referring to a specific example, once again, in Numbers. In this case, though, in Numbers 14. Now, Numbers 14, I'm going to read the first four verses, explain the context. Um, He said, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones would become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and let's go back. Now this narrative, this happens after the ten spies come back from the land of Canaan. They give a bad report. That's the people's response. Now notice their response. What what did they say? They felt that God was withholding good from them. They felt entitled to the land that God had promised them, but entitled to it free of difficulty. They didn't want to work for it. They didn't want to have to fight for it. They didn't want any obstacles in their way. And so what we have an example then in that situation is they come and they do not complain in a godly way. We know this because the accusation they make against God is that he's not good, he's not loving, he's just brought them out in the wilderness to die. It would actually be better. Slavery and bondage. Slavery and bondage would be better. So slavery and bondage without God 
is better than my current situation with God. So their complaining was from a position that thought they deserved from God. We said this pride that's born out of the sense of entitlement. They felt that what they had before was better. They felt that they had been better without him. And so in that, they come before God full of pride. And in their complaining, they sin against God. So when we come before God with our complaints, we must bring our pain, not our pride. That's an important point, so I'm going to say that one again. When we come before God in our lamenting and in our pain, we must bring our pain, but not our pride. To be clear, suffering, trials, and pains will cause us as believers to doubt. We look at the things around us and we have internal doubts. And doubting is not necessarily a bad thing. It's what we do with it that matters. Now, Paul Tripp, he he helpfully categorizes two types of doubt, and I think they fit perfectly with our discussion this morning. So I'm going to use his categories and how to describe them. He describes that in a believer's life, suffering will either lead to the doubt of wonderment, which we'll talk about with the next point, or the doubt of judgment. So I'm going to read his description of the doubt of judgment, and this is the kind of doubt that leads to complaining that is not godly. This is what he says. He says, this form of doubt, the doubt of judgment, This form of doubt is the result of concluding that because of our circumstances, God is not good and therefore not worthy of our trust. It's to bring God into the court of our judgment and determine that he is unfaithful, unloving, or uncaring in some way. The minute your functional theology tells you that God is not good, it's very hard to hold on to the confessional theology that declares he is. Once this happens, you no longer actually believe what you once believed about God. And because you don't, you will no longer run to him for help. You don't actually think that he's with you and loves you. So you quit doing the faith in God things that you once did. Your suffering has told you that God isn't good. So you quit following him and relying on him for help. This is the doubt of judgment. And the scary part of this description is the picture of what's going on in our hearts when we're doing this. This phrase that stuck out to me is this bringing God into the court of our judgment. Now in February 2019, Raphael Samuel of Mumbai looked to sue his parents because he was born without his consent. He is quoted as saying, I love my parents and we have a great relationship but they had me for their joy and their pleasure. My life has been amazing, but I don't see why I should put another life through the rigmarole of school and finding a career, especially when they didn't ask to exist. Now, you and I hear that and rightfully think that that is ridiculous. All right, here is this man who has been loved and raised by his parents, and he wants to turn around in an ungrateful act of entitlement and ensue his parents for the fact that they chose to have him. It's really bringing his parents into the court of his judgment and deeming them unworthy of his trust. And that is what we are like when we do this with God. When in response to the circumstances of life, we judge God not to be good and not to be loving. When we determine that because of the circumstances of our life that we don't have control over, that we can't trust God. 
And in our complaints, that's what we often do. We actually want to be our own gods. We think we could do it better than God is doing it. And we actually come before him arrogantly, shaking our fist at God in anger. This is a great example of complaining that is not godly. So how can I know then if this is what's going on? Well, complaining that is not godly, as we described, leads to anger and bitterness towards God that always results in withdrawal and isolation. Always. Proverbs 18.1, which we mentioned last week, says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. This is really going to be a key indicator of this is the kind of complaining that we're doing. To see if I'm really going to God in the middle of my suffering with a proud, demanding heart, a heart that is seeking to choose God. So some questions. Do, do you withdraw from personal worship? Right, in the midst of your suffering and your trial, do you pull away? Do you withdraw from corporate worship? Or maybe it's not an external withdrawal. Maybe, maybe you haven't withdrawn in physical ways, but you're no longer open with other people and relationships. You hide what's really going on. And all those things are indicator, they're a key indicator that if I'm going to God with my complaints and that is what I see that's coming out of my life, then my complaints are probably not godly complaints. When we do this, we have allowed our circumstances to cause us to doubt who God is, leading to anger and bitterness toward God and going before him with a proud accusing heart that we would be better in a place without God, so we withdraw. And in that posture, in that heart position, what comes out of our mouths is not godly complaint. Well, that's what godly complaining is not. So the question then, what is godly complaining? Right? What, 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 let's talk about what godly complaining is. In contrast, godly complaint is coming before God with a heart posture of humility calling on God to act in a way that's consistent with his character, is really pushing back against our feelings. Just as before, the sufferings we experience will cause us to doubt. We, we, we know things to be true about God, but we look at our circumstances and they don't seem to line up. The circumstances in my life, who I know God to be, they don't seem to mesh. Perhaps we feel like God is not there, yet we know from Scripture that Christ has said he'll never leave us or forsake us and that he'd be with us to the end of the age. We know this is a promise of God, but it doesn't feel like he is there. So we come to God in a posture of humility, calling on him in a way that is consistent with his character, is running into who we know God to be, into who we know Scripture to tell us God is. And this is what Paul Tripp describes as the doubt of wonderment. So I'm going to read his description of how he describes the doubt of wonderment. God's ways can confuse you. His ways are not like our ways. His plans often don't mesh with the plans we have for ourselves. What God knows is good for us doesn't always look good to us. He takes us places we would never choose to go. There are times when in the when in the way in which he delivers what he's promised, looks to us as if he's breaking his promises. He doesn't warn us ahead of time before he initiates changes in our lives. He doesn't invite us into the counsel of his secret will. He will not submit his sovereignty to our sense of what is best. He will exercise his power to deliver not what we want, but what he knows 
we need. If the doubt of wonderment causes you to come to God with sincere questions, then asking is an act of faith. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about running to God with sincere questions from a humble heart that is seeking to trust in Him. We're confused. We don't understand. We, like we said, we know this is, this is what the Word says. But man, what I'm experiencing sure doesn't seem to line up. And so then I run into God with sincere questions, frustrations, doubts, and I bring them to Him. And this is the opposite of what most believers do in their suffering. This is the kind of godly complaint that is an act of faith. And there are many examples of this in Scripture, and we're going to look at Psalm 10, but I wanted to show you another example. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. I know that uh, a while ago, we, uh, Steve preached through this letter, Habakkuk. Give you a minute to get there as I get there myself. We have a really, I think, a really good example of what this looks like in Habakkuk. Now the prophet Habakkuk, he looked throughout Judah and he saw many things that were sinful against God. He, he knows God to be good. He knows God's loving. He knows God's just. And he knows God hates sin. And when he looks around him in the society in which he lives, he saw everything that was contrary to the character of God and he didn't understand why God wouldn't fix it. Why, God, are you allowing this? Why aren't you doing something? So in the first four verses of Habakkuk, we actually see this prophet come before God with his complaint. And this is what he says in the first four verses. This is from Habakkuk. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now notice how the prophet goes before God and is complaining to him because he says, I know who you are, God, and what I'm seeing doesn't line up. This isn't a complaint in anger or bitterness. This isn't a questioning of God's character. This is a calling out to God in faith because what he sees doesn't line up with what he knows to be true. We're not going to work through all of what Habakkuk says, but know that God answers the prophet in a way that he never would have guessed. He says, God, why won't you change this? And God says, well, I do have a plan. I'm going to bring in another nation to judge and back says, wait a second, that's not what I meant. <laughs> that's not the kind of answer I was looking for. And so he has this back and forth with God, but what's amazing is when the response of Habakkuk ultimately, and I think that this is what's helpful, this shows us Habakkuk's heart posture when he was complaining towards God. And as we see through here, what's the difference between godly complaint and not godly complaint is the heart posture of the person who's complaining. And it's evident here at the end of Habakkuk. After this back and forth, even though Habakkuk does not agree with what God is planning to do, this is what Habakkuk says in, he, in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This response of Habakkuk to God, even when he doesn't understand, even when he doesn't agree with what God is going to do, reveals a heart posture of humility towards God. And he rests in the place, the only place he can rest, and that's in the character of God. There is complaint that comes to God with our doubts. There is a way to voice our questions and frustrations to God in a way that's not sinful. And I don't know about you, but to me, to me that's encouraging to my soul. Because I go through this life like the rest of you, and there are lots of things that happen that I don't understand. Lots of things that God brings into my life that hurt And it's encouraging to me to know that God actually wants me with a heart of humility to bring that to him. So what's the purpose? Put simply, the purpose of godly complaint is to move us toward God. We should never stay in our complaints He wants us to bring them, but our complaints are really just a pathway toward Him. To stay in, yes, God wants us to bring our complaints, but to stay in complaint is dangerous because it will lead to anger and to bitterness if I don't move past it. And we'll talk about those things next week. But... Complaint is a pathway through our pain to God. So how do we complain the right way? That's, that's where then, so then what do I do? How, how do I actually complain in a way that's honoring to God? What kind of language can I use? Let's say I'm, I'm coming to God with a heart of humility and have genuine, sincere questions, frustrations, hurts, and pains. How do I voice them? How do I put a language in words to what I'm feeling and struggling with on the inside of me? So let's talk about some of these, these principles and to help frame our complaints in a biblical way. First is, first is come humbly. First is come humbly. And we've talked about this, that we need to come with a humble heart. There's, there's no place to be angry with God. You can come before God with pain-filled questions and pain-filled frustrations, but with a humble heart. You cannot come before God with pride and a feeling of deserving something from him, if we come to God in that way, our pride demanding complaints will be ungodly. So first we have to examine our own hearts as we approach him. That's first come humbly, but secondarily is pray the Bible. What what I've been trying to, to emphasize these last few weeks is that God actually gives us a language in the Psalms in particular to our complaints, our frustrations, our questions, our hurts and our pains. So it's okay for us to use the language that he has given to us. It is real and raw. And vulnerable, and, and we're gonna we're gonna see this even in Psalm ten, right? So in Psalm ten, verse one, you know, first of all, I'm gonna say, bring your questions, right? We're gonna pray the Bible, and what do we see in the Bible as people are complaining? They ask God questions. So bring your questions to God. 
mean, that's the very beginning of Psalm 10. What does he say? He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? The psalmist asks a why question. He, he comes from God and, and basically says, why does it seem like you are not near? I think we can all relate to this, right? He's sorrowing, and in his sorrow, he feels like God is distant. He's struggling to sense God in the middle of his pain. I'm going to guess that all of us, every single person in this room has experienced that. Feeling like God isn't near, looking at the hard circumstances of life and saying to yourself, where are you, God? Where are you? And notice that that's the exact question that the psalmist asks to God. God, it sure feels like you're not here. That's not the only question he asks. He also asks, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Not only does it feel like God isn't there, it feels like he's not doing anything. And he wonders aloud and he asks God this question. I'm guessing that for some people in here, if you're like me, that that seems like a bit uncomfortable. The psalmist goes before God and he asks, why does it seem that he isn't here? And why does it seem like you're not doing anything? But yet, I want to emphasize again, here they are in Scripture for us. Here they are in Scripture for us to read, to see, to understand. These are all questions that we can relate to and we can see how it is okay in a heart of humility to come before God with these types of questions. It is okay to come before God in the middle of suffering when it feels like he's not near and it feels like he's not doing anything and in a heart of humility say, God, I know that you promised that you'd be with me, but it sure feels like you're not here. And it sure feels like you're not doing anything. Why? That's okay. But why questions aren't the only questions I would say. Ask why questions. When he said, bring your questions, what kind of questions? Ask why questions. The why questions of your heart that we see modeled for us in the Psalms. But we also see how questions. And we say, ask how questions. And here are two examples from other Psalms. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2 says this. Another lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And in Psalm 35, 17, another how question, how long, O Lord, will you look on? These are examples of, of how questions. God, it sure seems like you've forgotten me. How long am I going to be in this? How long is this pain going to last? How long will it feel like you're not there? How long will I spend my days in sorrow where I feel like all I can do is put one foot in front of the other? How long, God, is this going to be? How long will it feel like the wicked prosper and win? How long? It's okay in a heart of humility to bring your why questions and your how questions to God in your sorrow. It's okay. 
Michael Jenkins in his book, In the House of the Lord, remind us that God can handle our struggles. That's what he writes. The Psalms of Lament open us up to the greatness of a God who not only can hear, but also can handle our pain, our self-pity, our blame, and our fear. Who responds to our anger, our disillusionment in the midst of oppression and persecution under the boot of tyranny and our sense of God-forsakenness in the face of life's most profound alienations and exiles. Listen, folks. God is not scared of our questions. He's not scared of our pain. He's not scared of our frustrations. It is okay to come and to bring them at his feet but not only do you bring your questions, we look at what kind of questions. Ask why questions. Ask how questions. How would encourage you? I would encourage you to look through the Psalms. And, and I would pray that as you read the Lament Psalms from this study forward, that you would see them with a little different eye. And you would look out for these types of things. When you see why, and you see how, and you see questions, that you note what kind of questions is the psalmist asking God? And how can that relate to what I'm going through so I can voice that to him? But not only bring your questions, also bring your frustrations. We said pray the Bible. One part of praying the Bible is to bring your questions. Another part of praying the Bible is to bring your frustrations. And we see this in Psalm 10 as well in verses 2 through 11. I'm going to read parts of it so we just get the feel of, remind ourselves again of what the psalmist is frustrated with. He says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. You know, as he goes on, he says in their thoughts, they're saying there is no God and, and they keep doing what they're doing because nothing happens and they think God's forgotten me. He's not seeing me. I'm getting away with it. Now notice that, that the psalmist, he asks his why questions, but then he says, like, I'm frustrated, right? I look out and I see the wicked sure seem to prosper. It sure seems like they're getting what they want. And that's frustrating. Like, God, you know, like why, are the, why do the wicked prosper? Why do you let them get away with it? Like, this is, this is we see here a, an expression of frustration. And that's okay. It's okay, bring your frustrations. When you pray the Bible, bring your questions and your complaints. Bring your frustrations to God, which leads us to the third thing, which is be honest. Right? Be honest. Not only pray the Bible, be honest. When we come before God with our questions and frustrations, we must be honest. It doesn't help if we don't honestly and humbly lay out our questions and the frustrations of our hearts. We need to lay them bare before God. God is not surprised. He welcomes us. He actually calls us. He wants us to come to Him with our pain. He wants, us, he wants us to allow the questions, the frustrations, the hurts and pains to drive us toward Him. So when you come to God in that way, in a heart of humility, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Notice that our greatest example of Christ on the cross when he's in the middle of the most intense suffering, more so than any of us could even possibly comprehend, what does he do? He laments. And he cries out to God. And it's honest. And it's real. And it's raw. And it's biblical. And it's godly. So be 
honest. And lastly, number four, don't just complain. And this is important. I mentioned it last week, and we mentioned it again. The purpose of godly complaint is to drive us to God. It is not healthy, and it is not good for us to stay in our complaints. Bring your complaints. Pray your questions, your frustrations, your doubts, your fears, your hurts, your, pray, your pain. Pray them to God. But we can't sit there, and we can't stay there. We're not meant to. We are to consistently bring them and lay them before him. But if we stay and we only sit in our complaint, then we will become angry and bitter and begin to doubt God's love and goodness. And we will be withdraw from God and from others. And we're going to look at that next week. So we're kind of in the middle, right? We said, you know, first, what's lamenting is that we need to go to God, turn to God. Secondarily, we need to bring our complaints to him. It's okay. But we can't sit there. So if you're listening to this, or if you're not here next week, don't stop with this Sunday because you won't get the rest of it. We don't want to stay in complaint. We want to bring it. And we want to be honest, but the next steps are going to be crucial so that we end in the right place with God. Okay, and we will look at that, like I said, over next week. So then what could we say to Caitlin then? She struggles with her doubts, her frustrations and her fears and her suffering. What could we tell her? We could tell her to turn to God, to bring her complaints before him. We could remind her that God is not scared of her doubts. God is not scared of her questions. God is not scared of her frustrations. God actually wants her to go to him and lay them at his feet. He would want her, in her brokenness, to open herself in a posture of humility before her Savior and to cry out to him. And that is the same thing I would say to each of our hearts this morning. That is what God wants from each and every one of us. Turn to God. Hear me. Turn to God with a heart of humility and prayer and bring your complaints. Bring your questions and your doubts. Bring your fears and frustrations. He is not scared of what you have to say. God is big enough to handle all of your hurt and all of your pain. The only place, to be clear, (laughs) the only place of true healing in the midst of suffering is pain and actually found in him. And we can't get there if we don't bring it to him. There's a hymn. It's written by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. They wrote it in the last few years. And it's a song of lament. And and I think that the lyrics of this beautifully capture what we're talking about this morning. This process of bringing our hurts and our pains and ultimately turning to God. The song is called, Lord from Sorrow's Deep I Call. I would highly recommend you looking up and listening to it. It's a powerful song. So I'm going to end this morning by reading the lyrics to this song. Lord, from sorrow's deep I call when my hope is shaken, torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. For so long I've pled and prayed, God, come to my rescue. Even so, the thorn remains still my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith these billows roll. God, be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you.
when the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. And oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm, you're still my God, my salvation. Should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God, be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night, be my hope and refuge, till my faith is turned to sight. Lord, my heart will praise you. And oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help, my rock, I will praise him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my God, my salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.